Well, if you will please open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And Brother Jim, we're going to read the text that you read with a little more context. And since you read that, it gave me confidence that that's, this is the Lord's text for this morning. I don't know that it's the Lord's sermon, but I do know that it's the Lord's text. And so if you don't get anything else, you can just hear this text and you can know that it's for us. This is God's word for us this morning. We'll start up in verse 1. Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the, other, the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by, become obe by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we rejoice that you are our Father. Lord, we rejoice for, for little tokens that you give us, for your kindness that you remember our frame. Father, you have been so good to us. Lord, to this group of people, you have been tremendously faithful. Not one good word of every word that you have promised this people has ever failed so lord we pray this morning that we would excel still more in the business of laying down our lives for one another God, we pray that you might, through the power of your holy spirit knit us together even more God, that you would gain ground for the gospel this morning Lord, I, we never know what's going on. If reconciliation is needed somewhere, let there be reconciliation. Lord, if tightening and bonds of friendship and fellowship and the gospel of Christ is needed, let that happen. Lord, we are looking to you this morning for help and grace to make your people even more one in experience. Lord, help us to be pouring ourselves out on the sacrifice and service of one another's faith. I pray that you would give us a vision of Christ, which would be the answer to absolutely everything. We commit ourselves to you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Philippians here is, of course, written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. And it seems like at the church at Philippi, foreign relations were going pretty well. And Paul was encouraged in that respect. These Philippians had sent Paul a gift. He was encouraged, at least somewhat, in their affection and in their participation of the gospel from the first day until now. And so foreign relations were looking pretty good. But it seems like that on the home front, things were not going so well. At least we know on a very small measure this was true, because if you look over in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul is urging two people to be in harmony with one another. And just by the fact that he's given these exhortations here in chapter 2, it seems like there may have been a little bit of, of division that's creeping in. There's a little bit of separation in the fellowship. And... I, I don't know, you know, how this happens. You know, sometimes you go to the same place with the same people week in and week out and week in and week out, and that goes on. Days turn into months and months turn into years, and, you know, your nerves start grinding on each other a little bit. I don't know if that's what's happening here. Or it could have been even more subtle than that and just as dangerous, and that is that you simply get used to one another. You get used to the fact of this thing of the kingdom of God and what God has done in individual Christians. Church, He did not call you out as a group. He says, I, I will call my sheep out by name. Paul says, He loved me and gave Himself for me. Each Christian here this morning has had a miracle in their life that is every bit as powerful as what God did when there was nothing in existence and He called the world out of nothing. I mean, we have to be very careful not to get used to this miracle. And even the weakest, smallest, in relation, Christian here this morning has more importance than the kingdom of God than... I mean, it can't even be estimated. And so you have to be careful that you don't let days turn into months and months turn into years and you start getting used to each other. And in the beginning, you're in everyone's homes, you're fellowshipping, you're talking about the things of the Lord. You're going up to your brothers and sisters and you're saying, tell me, what has God done for your soul today? And they've got something to say. And then vice versa, the situation turns around and you're, you're fellowshipping with one another. You're spending time with one another. Christ is the centerpiece of the conversation. But this whole thing of neutrality sets in. And pretty soon you're no longer in each other's homes as much. Or if you are, you're in one or two certain people's homes and that's the only people you ever really hang out with. And all of the sudden, biblical fellowship is traded for worldly friendship. Yeah, you talk about the things of the Lord every once in a while, but the centerpiece is not Christ. The burden of your talk, the burden of your demeanor, your time together is not this wonderful thing that God has done in Christ Jesus. You're no longer looking to pour yourself out on the sacrifice and service of another's faith. The thing gets introspective. You start looking in. And it's no longer this attack mode of, God, give me an opportunity to serve my brothers. And if a door doesn't open, I may just kick one down myself. 
this whole thing of fellowship. It is a dangerous thing to lose this vision of being a body. <laughs> I mean, this is a miracle. Look at the people in this room. This is utterly absurd. You've got people from all walks of life. What is a boy from Alabama that grew up in a redneck town doing in Kirksville, Missouri? And I could go around the room and talk about several of you. We are an odd group. But what does this mean? It means that the kingdom of God has come. And that since the kingdom of God has come, absolutely nothing else matters. And so because this is coming, because God has done what He has, we begin to pour ourselves out on behalf of one another, serving one another, guarding jealously this unity. Paul sees that this, this dynamic, this precious thing of Christian fellowship and pouring ourselves out is in trouble here in Philippi. And so he is going to attack and he is going to attack hard. He is going to give the absolute strongest medicine that he can possibly conceive. And you can believe that this is where the devil will attack you. If you remember the, the demoniac, if, and in um, one of the accounts, I think it may be Luke, it says that he was driven out into lonely places. That is the tactic of the enemy. To prove it again, it's actually the horror of church discipline. You're put out from the fellowship of the brothers. You're not protected anymore. And so in other words, you're kind of out there and you are open to the armies of darkness. That's the tactic of the enemy to get you out away from fellowship. To get a body like this just to grow neutral. Just to come to church, see each other on Sundays, maybe see each other every once in a while. But Christ is not the fellowship. Christ is not the centerpiece. You're not really pouring yourself out. You're just kind of existing with each other. There's just this great neutrality. And it may not happen with these little squabbles going on in backbiting. It is so subtle. But it can happen just in that you start out well by being in each other's homes, by encouraging one another, by being universal fellowshipping, fellowshipping with everyone to this whole thing of just kind of existing and going to church and just kind of going through the motions, greeting people on a superficial level. And everybody puts on their first church face when they come in the building and when they leave, they take it off. I mean, this is a danger and Paul sees this as a danger and so he is wanting to attack this thing. He's wanting to head it off. So Paul begins his exhortation by drawing them in here in verse, in verse 1. And what he's going to do is he's simply going to play off of their common experiences as individuals in order to draw them in. Now you've seen this dynamic in your own life and I'm laughing because this is hilarious. I was thinking, I was talking to Rachel about this, and I was like, how can I illustrate this? And she reminded me of something that happened to me while I was living in Romania. And so it's, it's, it's I think it was evening, and I hear this knock on the door, and I come to the door, and it's this Romanian, and he's like, you have got to come with me right now. And, you know, I had never seen a Romanian get this serious about something, so I thought, there is something seriously wrong. So I grabbed my Bible and went with him. And as I was going along the way, he explained that there was an American that this group from, I think, Minnesota had sent over there. He had never even been out of his hometown, much less his state, much less his country, 
much less Europe, much less Eastern Europe, where nobody, well, a lot of people didn't speak his language. And so this was his first time. And I want to tell you that this, I, you know, you hear people talk about culture shock. This guy was beside himself. I walked through the door, and he's just over in the corner standing like this. And when he saw that I am obviously American, he comes shooting over to me and grabs me. And he is holding me with all of his might. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do with this guy? And he said, I am so glad to see you. I, I am so thankful for you. I mean, I thought he was going to break out in God bless America right there in Romania. <laughs> and so, so we tried to talk and I just, I wanted to do awful things to the mission agency that did that to him. That's awful. But you see what I'm talking about here. There's this bond. If nothing more, it's a nationality. I was familiar with him. And all of a sudden, when he saw that we had this thing in common, he, cl he clenched me with all of his might. You've seen that before in your own life. You maybe meet someone, and you get to talking to them, and you find out that they actually know a place, or they've been to a place that really means a lot to you. Or maybe they know a mutual friend that really means a lot to you. And the conversation's going along, but when you discover that point, all of a sudden you've got this bond together. And that's what Paul is doing here in this verse. And he's doing it in the realm of the kingdom because he knows something. He knows that God will be faithful to work in Christians. He's already stated as much in um, chapter 1, verse 7, where he says, I know that you all are partakers of grace with me. And so he's going to build on that. And in verse 1 he says this. He says, if there is any encouragement of in Christ. You know, if we were to start talking to individual Christians today and says, have you had any lately any encouragement in Christ? Well, at the beginning they may say, yeah, I, I can't think of anything. But if you gave them long enough, they'd, they'd say, yeah, well, you know, there was this, this last week when I was walk, walking along, I was feeling discouraged. I was feeling defeated and beat down. And, man, there was this song that I heard on a CD. And, man, I felt encouragement in Christ. Or I was reading this verse over in the Old Testament and Psalms, and all of a sudden it jumped out to me. And I thought, man, I am going to press on to know the Lord. Every Christian in this room, whether in a great measure or a small measure, knows something about encouragement in Christ. He goes on, if there's any consolation of love. You've been walking along sometime here late and you've just been feeling under the thing. It's like Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you're not tired of the work, but you get tired in it. And it starts weighing down on you, whether it's just day-to-day -day life or whatever, and you just... It's just a break of fellowship here and you don't sense the love of God, but then it comes. Then it comes and it can come in the most extraordinary manner or the most smallest manner, but there's this consolation of love. You know that you are loved by God. Yes, the world is falling apart. Yes, papers are stacked high on your desk. The kids are crying. Everything's in disarray, but there's a sense of consolation of the love of God. He says if there's any fellowship with the Spirit... You've been walking along, feeling like you're dry, feeling like, man, I'm just kind of slogging in the dark. You're like Jacob. You start praying at night, but all of a sudden, day breaks. You're, you may be there at your dishes or you're typing at your computer, and all of a sudden, there's this fellowship with God. Every Christian, every true Christian knows something about fellowship with God. And so he is seizing on this. And he's saying, okay, 
do you know something about this? And by this time, the Philippians are nodding. They're saying, okay, yeah, I know, I know something about fellowship with the Spirit. I know something about consolation with love. And so he, he takes them at that moment and says, okay, then make my joy complete. If you've got reality at all of the kingdom life this morning, of God as your Father manifesting His love in Jesus Christ towards you and the blessed third person of the Trinity carrying you along and fellowshipping with you, if you have any reality of that, fill up Paul's joy. How? How, Paul? How, what, what is it that would absolutely throw your joy just out of the roof. It would just make your cup run over. He said, I'll tell you what. He goes on in verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. How precious it is when brothers dwell in unity. Unity. Not this artificial thing that the world creates. The world's unity is essentially negative. The world's unity consists of a nation coming together with another nation and signing a little contract to promise that we won't blow each other up. And they shake hands and somebody has to take a picture of it. You know why they have to take a picture of it? Because in a couple of years, the only evidence that that treaty ever existed is going to be that picture. Because they're going to be firing missiles at each other again. The world's unity is essentially negative. They can only promise they won't do certain things. But Paul is calling for a different sort of unity here. He is calling for a kingdom unity. Do you know anything about God? Do you know anything about love, fellowship, affection, consolation to these things? Alright, then let's be intent on one purpose. Now, that's a pretty big deal because what is the purpose? I mean, you don't want to just charge this whole thing up and then you start asking, well, that sounds great, Paul, but what, what purpose are you talking about? I think he gives us a clue. Well, I don't think he just gives us a clue. I think he flat out says it. Look up in 127, chapter 1, verse 27. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Okay, do you hear the similar language that's being used here? He's talking about this oneness down here in chapter 2, verse 2. He's still talking about oneness up here in 127. So what does he say? Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So Paul is saying, make my joy complete by having a unified determination to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Now when you hear this, immediately your first thought is probably solely that this is an evangelistic endeavor. This has to do with the kingdom pressing forward and, the, and people coming into the kingdom through conversion. And I do think there's an element of that here, but I don't think that's the burden of it. And I don't think that's the burden of it because what he says previously in chapter 1, verses 21 through 24 can be summed up like this. Paul says, For me to live as Christ... And to die is gain. And to be honest, I'm having a very hard time deciding which one of these I want to do. 
to depart and be with Christ. Now that, that is what I want. I want to be with Christ. But to remain with you is much more necessary. So I'm convinced I'm going to do that. Now listen to verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. In the faith. I think Paul's burden here is to say this. Do you know anything about kingdom realities, about exhortation in Christ? Then come together and strive with this purpose, each other's progress and joy in the faith. Pour yourself out. Don't know any limits whatsoever to make sure that every single Christian in this room is absolutely thriving in Christ Jesus. And that may mean that you have to go to another state to help them move. It may mean that when you invite them over, you try to read something to them or try to exhort them. It may mean that you just sit with them in silence if they're grieving. It can mean a hundred different things, all the way from the physical to the spiritual. But the, the burden of the thing is this, striving together for the progress and joy of the faith of other Christians. That's his burden. And and at the backdrop of this burden, as this is coming off and he can feel the force of this exhortation, the very first thing that pops into his mind as the greatest hindrance to this is not false doctrine. Now, false doctrine can do some really destructive things. You get false doctrine in a local congregation and it can wreak havoc. And it's also not persecution. Persecution can scatter believers. Now, believers will thrive under persecution, but in the short term, it can really do a number on some churches. But that's not Paul's greatest concern. Paul's greatest concern, the absolute greatest hindrance to this endeavor of striving together for the faith of the gospel, pouring ourselves out for one another, is this. It's pride. Pride. One thing can hinder our future, and that is pride. This looking at yourself and this considering your rights and agenda is more important than others. Now, you all know that we had this, all this flooding, <laughs> flooding here recently, and I, I didn't think it had hit my house because the day after it, was, it had flooded, I went under there and I, I opened up my little crawl space and everything was dry. The leaves, I was, I was looking at dry leaves and dust on top of those dry leaves. So I thought, I'm fine. Well, that night our air conditioning for some reason went out and would not come back on. And our air conditioner is under our house. So I thought, I better, I better just go look one more time. I mean, I know it's dry, but just to ease my conscience. So I took my, my little hoe this time and so I, I, just kind of tap the dry spot to see if maybe it was a little bit damp underneath. I don't know if you've ever like hit a waterbed when it goes. Well, that's what this sheet of dry plastic with dry leaves on top did. The water had run under the plastic, and so the plastic was perfectly dry on top, no problem whatsoever. But there was about seven inches of water in the high spots underneath that plastic. Now that all happened for one reason and one reason alone. My sump pump didn't work. The difference between keeping the flood in and keeping the flood out was a sump pump. 
I mean, they're not very big compared to how big my house is. And as a matter of fact, everything was plugged in. Everything looked fine. I think what happened was is the hose got wrapped around the little bubble that's actually supposed to be going up. So the bubble was held underwater. And lo and behold, in comes the flood. And that is exactly what can happen in this context. I mean... False doctrine is destructive. It can be combated. Persecution is a bad thing. You can console the saints. But you start getting pride in a place and the undoing is very, very close by. It's the difference between keeping the flood in and keeping the flood out. And Paul is concerned about this and so he is going to attack this with all of his might. And he does it like this. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also the interest of others. So Paul is wanting to safeguard things here, and I think it's important that we understand what he's saying. What does he mean by selfishness? What does he mean by empty conceit? Well, we know what conceited means. It means you're kind of puffed up in your mind. And we know what empty means. It means there's nothing there. So, you hate to say it, but the idea of empty conceit is this fellow who's walking around who's got a pretty high opinion of himself and it's for no good reason at all. Empty conceit. Now, how does this manifest itself? You've got this person who they think they've got some rights that need to be honored. I mean, they'll serve as far as that goes, but they've got some stuff that needs to be honored. They've got an agenda that they feel like needs to be, needs to be recognized. The first place and the way that it manifests itself is in this whole thing of selfishness. Now, what does this mean? Look up in 127. Paul's been talking about these two types of people. There's some people that preach Christ and they do it because they they love Paul and they want to see the gospel advance. There's other people that preach Christ and they do it out of envy and strife. He says the former, these people that are proclaiming out of envy and strife, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives. Thinking to cause me distress. This is the exact same word in Greek as you got down here with selfishness. Or as some translations translate it, selfish ambition. It's this whole thing of putting yourself up in a position so that you can get your agenda taken care of. The word was also used for um, politicians. They would make all these different promises and claims to get themselves in office because they had something that they wanted to do. It's this fellow that he's puffed up in his mind. He's got this high opinion of himself. Because he's got this high opinion of himself, he feels like he's got an agenda that needs to be recognized. Agendas in the context of the local body. Now what is wrong with this? It fundamentally asks the wrong question. The question that we should be asking is not, how are my brothers and sisters going to serve me? You know, I'm coming here to church. I need to be fed. Why isn't so-and-so talking to me? Why isn't isn't so-and-so spending as much time with me? What's the deal here? I can assure you of this. The firstborn child of empty conceit is self-pity. Self-pity. You begin to look at yourself and say... You know, I'm, I don't, I'm just not being served. I'm not being fed like I should. That's asking the wrong question. 
the New Testament question to ask is, how can I pour myself out on another? How can I serve the body? I don't care what's going on. I don't care who is doing what to me. It doesn't matter. That is manifestly beside the point. How can I advance the kingdom in this group of people? There are people this morning, you never know. I was talking with Charles the other night. We were under the house. And I was talking with him the other night. And I've seen it in my own life. And I just experienced it fresh. And I said, brother, you never know what's going on with other people. I mean, there are people this morning... Right here under the sound of my voice, I don't have anybody in mind, but I'm sure there is. You're struggling with depression. You've just gotten under it. You've gotten down under it. There may be other people this morning that you've got a besetting sin. I mean, you're fighting against it. You've seen some victory in your life here and there. But man, this thing has gotten over the top of you. And you're feeling like you don't know if you can get above it. There's other people this morning, they've been slandered by demons all week long, and they've just been driven down into the mud. There's other people that need help in physical realms, like people being under your house helping fix your air conditioning. There are all kinds of needs here this morning. (laughs) You will never, ever get into the realm of self-pity because there's no one, simply because there's nowhere for you to pour yourself out. We must be in other people's lives. we got to come together. We simply will not advance like we will advance together. There are no lone rangers in Christianity. God has only had one hero and He is not accepting any more applications. Christ has come. Christ is the centerpiece. Christ is the head. We are the body. We need each other. We need each other. There is not a single saint in this room that does not need what every other saint has. That is just biblical Christianity. We've not even gone into the realm of interpretation. I'm just talking about the Bible. We need each other. And if we are not in each other's life, we are going to hurt. We are going to hurt as a body if we're not pouring ourselves out for each other. And Paul sees this critical, critical Thing that can enter in where a person begins to get this inflated view of themselves in their mind and they think they've got some rights. They think they've got an agenda that needs to be honored. And so they start asking the wrong question. How can I be served? And so Paul sees this. Paul sees this. And Paul basically starts saying this. Alright, you want to talk about rights? We can talk about rights. You want to talk about privileges that need to be honored? I'll talk to you about privileges that need to be honored. You want to talk about someone with an agenda that deserves every bit of attention and the utmost strength of everything that's ever been created? I will tell you about a king. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God (laughs) now this is where you just utterly fail you know 
I was thinking this morning that at this point I was going to say I could explain you to this to you theologically, but honestly, I don't think that I can fully explain it to you theologically. I can tell you what a lot of other people have said. This is a mystery. Christ, the second person of the blessed Trinity, uncreated glory and the source of all beauty. Now, we will be theological in this, but it's not enough. It is simply not enough to be able to explain this passage. It's not enough to be able to label this, well, this is the incarnation, which means God becoming, or the second person of the Trinity becoming flesh. And then to pat ourselves on the back and walk out that door and think that we have done justice to this passage. Paul is not giving a seminary lecture here. He is giving strong medicine. And that's why it's important not only to see what Paul argues, but the way in which he argues for it. When Paul wants to give strong medicine to a critical situation, he doesn't go to Greek philosophy. He doesn't start talking about a bunch of moral rules. He doesn't even go to the Ten Commandments. He goes to the second person of the Trinity and the humility manifested in Him becoming flesh. It's very important. This is very important. You don't go to a doctor and you let the doctor tell you what's wrong with you and he says, you've got such and such a sickness and he steps back and he says, pick any medicine that you would like. He doesn't do that, does he? He says, you've got such and such sickness and you need that right there. That right there is going to cure you and nothing else is. And that's what Paul is doing here this morning. If we want to excel still more in this thing, of laying down our life for other Christians, of coming together as a body, striving for one purpose, which is the faith of the gospel, we must taste of the incarnation once again. We have to see it with brand new eyes and allow it to inundate us with the glory manifested in this act. And so Paul starts out not with Christ already in the flesh, but he starts out before that, Christ, who was in the form of God. Glory. Now, the only way I know to talk about this glory is to, to maybe draw your mind back to add or near your conversion. And if you're a new Christian, you may not have experienced this to the full extent yet. But when God came to you, I am not talking about you giving yourself to God, which is the day-to-day process of sanctification. I'm talking about a time in your reading of the Word, of your praying, of your singing hymns, of fellowship, or something like that, when God overwhelmed you with His love. There's a sense of glory. I'm talking about this thing of the outpouring of the Spirit, the testimony of the Spirit, telling you that you are a child of God. The universal testimony of every Christian that has ever undergone that experience is this. They would not, during that moment, they don't want to be anywhere else. There is no other place on the face of the earth they would rather be. It doesn't matter that if they're in a slum somewhere or in the nicest house imaginable, everything else is irrelevant. Friends, family, job, security, possessions, nothing matters. They have this sense of glory. Absolute glory. To illustrate this maybe a little further, let me read you this experience in one area of Jonathan Edwards' life. He says, once as I rode out into the woods for my health, 
In 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place as my manner commonly has been to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that was to me extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and His wonderful, great, full, pure and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle humility. The grace appeared so calm and sweet appeared so great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellently great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued, as near as I can judge, about an hour, which kept the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express emptied, and annihilated to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone. You know what Peter calls that experience? Joy unspeakable, full of glory. Christ dwelled in that. That is but a shadow. What he experienced there, and if you've ever experienced anything of that rapture, that is but a shadow And Christ is the substance. That is only a drop. Christ is the ocean. It would be going out like you go outside right now and you stand out in the sun. If you stand out there for about an hour and it's hot enough, you are going to get, you're going to get hot. You're going to get fatigued. But you're 93 million miles away from the sun. But even at 93 million miles away, there are people who actually die from the sun. I mean, that's astounding. It's 93 million miles away, but people are dying. They're having heat strokes. They're getting exhausted. They're getting dehydrated. Even with the sun at such a great distance, they simply cannot handle its heat. And maybe it's 110 degrees. But now imagine this. Imagine if in the twinkling of an eye, you were transported to five feet from the sun. 10,000 degrees of burning fury. If you regained consciousness long enough, it would melt you like a little piece of wax before a huge furnace. That is a very small measure of what this glory is in compared that we have experienced to the glory that Christ had before the world began. Because the sun is simply a damp, cold, dark shadow compared with the glory of Christ. He lived there. He lived there. Where every Christian who has ever experienced but a drop of that said they would never leave it no matter what the world offered them, no matter what it cost them. They wanted to stay in this one place. They never left it. He was in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And this is where the second Adam excels the first Adam. The first Adam was tempted and he was presented as a thing of equality with God, as a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to. You will be like God. And he said, yes, I'll take that. Christ was already there. And yet he did not assert his rights.
verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The next we see this glorious Christ who completely undid Isaiah is in a manger. And you know, the humiliation of the thing, the absolute atrocity and the unthinkableness of the second person of the Trinity having taken on flesh is so great that we've actually had to dumb it down. We write songs like, No Crying He Makes. That's, that sells wonderful Christmas albums, but it makes for horrible theology. He was a man. He was a baby. He lived in subjection to Joseph and Mary. He was in the temple asking men questions. He was asking them questions. In whom is all wisdom and the fullness of deity in bodily form is asking questions to men. This is utterly astounding. Paul's saying, you want to talk about rights? I'll talk to you about rights. I will tell you about a king with rights. Who left his throne, took on flesh, and became a man. But not just a man, he became a bondservant. He goes around and he's making statements like, I didn't come to serve. I mean, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. He's come and giving examples. If I washed your feet, then you should do that for each other also. He's a bondservant. But he's not even finished yet. Verse 8. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Now we got a real problem here because this is the prince of life. Everything that came into existence came into existence through him and for him. And here he is. These people, these wicked people have rebelled against his father's rule. You want to talk about rights? Then let's talk about rights. Let's talk about the right of a king to chase every person in this room to the deepest chasm of hell and leave them there for all eternity to show everybody what happens when someone offends his father. That's rights. If you want to talk about an agenda that can be asserted, that is an agenda that can be asserted. And there is no creature on the face of the earth that would dare raise his voice against such assertion of rights. He is the king. You don't open your mouth before him. But that is not what he did. He is subjecting himself to death. Do you see the humiliation? But he is not finished even at this point. Because he's not just dying. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Deuteronomy 21-23 Cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. What a cross is made of. They're made of trees. He who knew no sin was made to know sin 
on your behalf. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake, for your sake, now we've got to be careful in all of our glory to Godding. We've got to be careful that we don't let Edwards give us a wrong emphasis in this. I don't think he had a wrong emphasis, but I think some of the people that are following him do have a wrong emphasis. And some of the people that are following John Piper do have a wrong emphasis. They talk about, you know, you'll hear some of their disciples talk about, well, Christ died for the glory of God. He died for the glory of God. There was one time when I was counseling a, a girl, and she was just so overcome with the fact that God loved her. And she said, I am just so amazed that God loves me. And I had this good, strong, reformed guy come by and he said, yeah, but don't you remember that Christ died for God's glory alone? That's wicked. You know why that's wicked? Because we need that. Yes, Christ primarily died for the glory of His Father. But if you don't have for your sake somewhere inside your mind, you are going to be robbed of something that is utterly critical in our lives. He says this, For the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is this, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. For your sake. And that is what this doctrine of the Incarnation, the second person of the Trinity becoming flesh, is given for. It's not given just for seminary professors to write books and argue about. It is given so that you will be utterly done with yourself. Utterly done with your agenda. It is given so that it will get you up at bed at night when you know that you have a brother that is going through something, a sister that is going through something, and you begin to pace the floors back and forth, calling down every blessing that God has on that person. That's what the incarnation's for. The incarnation is to get you past that little personality annoyance that you feel with other Christians. It is to catapult you through that so that you begin pouring yourself out on the sacrifice and service of their faith. That is what this doctrine is all about. And we need to taste this this morning. We need to see the glory of the second person of the Trinity humbling himself and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What does this mean? It means that we will not stop at anything to see every single Christian in this room doing well in the faith. It means that we will simply not spend time with just one or two people, that we will try our best and the greatest of our ability to be among the saints. To be among the saints. It means that if we have a grudge or something like that, or if we have some kind of annoyance between us and another believer, that we will begin pouring ourselves out for them. You want to know something? That is the quickest way. If, you've got, if you're having trouble with another believer and you're just like, man, I just can't get along with this person. Their personality is just completely different than mine. I'll tell you what you can do. You just start pouring yourself out for them. You start praying for them. Just make up something. Just utterly make up something. Just some way to go. Go pick up sticks in their yard. Just do something. Begin to pour yourself out on them. And you'll realize something this. That the reason why you probably are feeling that way is you had too much time on your hands to think about it. But if you take up your time with pouring yourself out on other people, it's funny how so much gets solved. So much gets solved.
Well, may the Lord help us in these things. Amen.